Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ashita, CEO and founder of Dayslice, a no-code storefront for services businesses that's raised $6 million in funding. Ashita, thanks for chatting with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, can we start with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, definitely. So I would say I think my career path has had a fair number of plot twists. So maybe I'll just kind of quickly run through the last almost decade now. So came out of college having studied math and thought originally that I'd want to get a PhD and decided to just get a little bit of work experience before taking the plunge and then ended up basically never looking back. So my first job, I joined Dropbox as a part of a rotation program, actually, because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do in the quote unquote real world. So essentially, it allowed me to try jobs in a couple of different six-month stints. And one of those rotations, which was actually the one I didn't get to pick, was being an SDR. And it's the one rotation that I actually think was the most meaningful and impactful. Now, you know, almost 10 years later, realizing that so much of my job actually as a founder is sales, you know, obviously recruiting, fundraising, customer acquisition, they're all sales in some shape or form. But ultimately found my way into product. I found that it aligned with my generalist skill set of both wanting to dig into like technical details and the nitty gritty of like the user experience while also getting to storytell and position products and work with the business side of the house. So I have spent most of my career in B2B SaaS product after Dropbox led product at a company called Fleetsmith, a security SaaS company, joined pretty early on right as they were raising the Series A and was there up until our acquisition by Apple. So that was, you know, a pretty exciting experience to see a company from the early stages to exit. And then now, as I look back, my experiences at both Fleetsmith and Dropbox have like deeply shaped how we've approached the product experience at Dayslice. So like quick reflections there from Dropbox, taking this ethos of bringing like the consumer grade user experience to business SaaS, and then from Fleetsmith, like focusing on workflow automation as like a means of generating product value. So yeah, pretty kind of a lot of twists and turns along the way. But I guess like looking back, the story always makes sense, right? I see on your LinkedIn as well, you're a board member of a nonprofit that's focused in, I think it was Nicaragua. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So one of my close friends started this nonprofit and it's around like teen empowerment through education. And so that's been a whole other experience, like fundraising for nonprofits is like a totally different beast. And obviously the dynamics are very different than like venture fundraising. But yeah, that's been like a totally different, like fun getting to scratch my itch on it in a different context. Nice. That's awesome. Now, a few other questions that we like to ask really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what CEO founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You know, honestly, I think a lot of my day-to-day learning comes from personal founder friends who are in similar stages of company building. I've built a deep appreciation of the value of like learning from peer groups. But I think if I had to pick a founder that's more widely known, I'd probably go with Brian Chesky from Airbnb. 
you know, I, I think like some of the best product designers I've worked with through my career, they've been incredibly intentional and thoughtful, of course, when it comes to like designing the user experience. And I think like to see someone take that ethos and then apply it to the aspects of company building has been like really inspiring. And actually at one of our last company offsites where we all got in person because we're a remote first company, we took one of Airbnb's concepts from their early product development process, which is the um, designing an 11-star experience. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yep. Yeah. So we, you know, we went through that process for our own product. And yeah, I, I think there's like a lot to learn from the Airbnb uh, company culture. Yeah, totally agree. On the topic of, you know, having peer founders who are in similar stages, how important do you think it is to be in San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley today? I feel like I benefit a lot from living in the city because, you know, within a one mile radius, I have many friends who are CEOs of seed stage and series A companies. And I think to be able to text someone and say, hey, do you want to get dinner tonight and talk about this topic that's top of mind? I think that's been a big part of my own like support system, both strategically and emotionally. That being said, if you are proactive enough, you can form those relationships, even if you're not in the Bay Area. I think it just means probably proactively reaching out to people if you are in their cities, you know, having that in-person time where you can get that initial trust going. But, you know, I've also had great calls with friends over Zoom. So it's something that I've benefited from personally, but I don't think that it's a requirement. Did you ever think about leaving SF? So when you know everyone was proactively talking about that all the time on Twitter and in the media, the decline of San Francisco and Silicon Valley, everyone moving to Miami, Austin, did you ever consider leaving? So I grew up in the Bay Area. So I would say yes and no in that, you know, I have family roots here. My husband's family is also in Santa Cruz. And so we actually had a big pull to the area, even, you know, beyond our careers. We did do a bit of a tour of the country, living in different places to vet whether we wanted to move there. And, you know, I think New York City, Denver, Seattle, like there were a lot of places that we were interested in. But after doing that entire tour, we realized we really love the Bay Area. So, we kind of, I would say, rechose the Bay Area post-pandemic to really like put our roots down. <laughs> nice. And what about books? So the way we like to frame this is to ask for a Quake book. So a Quake book, the term comes from Ryan Holiday, and he defined it as like a book that just like rocks you to your core and, and really influences how you think about the world. Do any books like that come to mind? Yeah, I guess I would probably go with Only the Paranoid Survives by Andy Grove. Are you familiar with it? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah. So, you know, like the high level, I guess, for the listeners who may not be, it's the context is like Intel navigating all of the the shifting competitive landscape of the chip market. And basically, I, I would say the main concept is it talks about like strategic inflection points. So like the big moments of opportunity or risk, for example, a macroeconomic change or a competitive shift and how it's your job as a leader to run towards making strategic shifts that can often be pretty emotionally challenging, right? Because I, I think like as humans, probably both in our personal and professional lives, we tend to instinctively cling to like past, to the past, past behaviors, past priors. And yeah, I mean, it, when I look at like Day Slice's history so far, I think there are definitely, there have been times where we've had to reset who our ideal customer persona is. And I think those are all like small examples of really staying like vigilant in 
addressing and looking at like what your assumptions are and re-updating as frequently as possible as you get like more information, even if it may be uncomfortable. And that's a perfect segue to dive right into Dayslice. So can you just tell us a bit more about what the platform does? Yeah. So Dayslice automates workflows for services businesses. So Specifically, we focus on workflows in three different categories. The first is scheduling. So that includes the transaction piece, so payments, pricing and packaging for these businesses. The second category is marketing, so tooling that makes it easier for these businesses to reach their customer base. And the third is customer management and insights. So our customers tend to be small businesses, often solo owners, and they're generally selling one-to-one services to a client list. So you could, you know, our customer base includes dog trainers, math tutors, guitar teachers. And of course, there's this like very long tail of like niche service providers who are using Dayslice. And take me back to September 2020 when you first formed the company. What were those early conversations like? And what was it about this problem and this market that made you say, yep, that's it. I want to start a company around that. Mm-hmm. Right. So actually in September 2020, I was working on a different problem and company, and it was a marketplace sort of adjacent. But through that process, I realized, you know, I was a lot more interested in building a SaaS product and, you know, building a marketplace has its own challenges and my background didn't really align with that. And it was sort of an accidental discovery that ultimately led to building and launching Dayslice in later 2021. But I started to notice that people were essentially running full services businesses through these really basic tools like Calendly, sometimes Google Forms. And at first, it was just a curiosity as to like what was happening here. And so reached out to a handful of folks who I started to observe were running their businesses this way, did these sessions where I was just digging into their stack and where they were spending their time and started to uncover pain points in essentially the competitive landscape. And coming out of those conversations found that when you look at the product ecosystem serving these folks, you're basically looking at one of two buckets. Bucket number one is either really narrow utility tooling that's fragmented. So for example, you have the payment bucket, which is like Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, Stripe. Then they might also be using a narrow utility scheduling tool. Let's just say, you know, Calendly is one of the more popular ones. Then they're probably using a spreadsheet for tracking the session packs that they're selling. And they probably have a tab in there that's like customer list. They're using a Word doc to collect the testimonials they're asking for. And so, you know, as I really dug into the tool stack of these service providers, you end up with like 12 different things that don't really talk well together. And so there was something that lacked the connective tissue in this like ecosystem of utility tools. That's like bucket number one. The second bucket is software that's built for much larger organizations. So, you know, if you look at a CRM, traditional CRMs on the market are far too heavyweight for our target customer. You know, a traditional CRM, a lot of times they're built in a way that assumes you have a sales ops team that's going to set it up. And even the number of steps you have to take to get value from that product are way too many. So you have to know what are the right questions to ask, how to run reports, and then you get that data and then you have to actually take that and act on it in your business. So, you know, if you look at the customer functionality in Dayslice, it's a very streamlined CRM that's reimagined for our customer base where we surface, you know, 
hey, this person hasn't booked with you recently. You probably want to follow up. Or you have consistent bookings with this person, but they've never given you a testimonial. This is like the right moment to ask. And so it's, you know, taking these concepts that exist for much larger businesses and rethinking what they look like for the smaller service provider. And for that ideal customer, how do you define that, like in terms of size? Is it someone that's like doing a service business that's less than 100K or like how do you define that? What's your criteria? Yeah, most of our customers are solo business providers and some, you know, are making that much a year. Some are making less, some are making more. It's less about how much revenue per year, but we have found that so most of them tend to sell one-to-one services. They have repeat customers. That's a big indicator of, you know, they are starting to need that functionality around the CRM piece. They care about things like session packs. But the number one thing we've actually found is just like a great qualifier for a lead is, do you have a customer list, right? And kind of going back to what I'd mentioned with that Andy Grove kind of like shifts you make in your business once you learn new things about an ideal customer persona. Early on when we launched, when the product went out in the market early last year, we had this wide array of people signing up. And so we had these service providers who we ultimately decided to focus on, but we also had creators signing up, you know, people who had huge audiences and they were trying to monetize these audiences and services was one tactic they were using to monetize their audiences. And, you know, within a couple of months, it became clear to us that like creators were not the audience we wanted to go after. And when you ask them that question of, do you have a customer list? The answer is no. That's not how they think about their audience. That's not how they're thinking about their business. They want the Swiss army knife of monetization of like 15 different ways that you could pay a creator. And that's very different from the behavior of, you know, let's say a dog trainer who probably has a list of like 25 customers. They have clearly defined services and they have the sense of like repeat interactions with their customers a lot more than a different type of persona. And can you give us an idea of the growth, adoption and traction that you're seeing today? Yeah. So 2023 has been a really exciting year of growth for us. You know, just being a little bit over halfway, we've already 4X our user base from last year with revenue scaling pretty similarly. And I would say one of the more exciting things for me in this growth is we are starting to see our percentage of growth from organic and word of mouth sources particularly shift higher and higher. And so, you know, it's a bit of the network effects of Dayslice. And if you're using Dayslice to run your company, there's like product visibility in the market because of that. I'd say the other kind of exciting thing we're starting to see this year versus last year is we, you know, had a lot of folks who tried us out early last year when we launched. And, you know, I think if you're using a tool to run your business, a lot of them felt this is a new company, it's a new product. And some folks went out into the market, tried a bunch of the incumbents and competitors and At the beginning of last year, we saw a lot of folks come back and basically say, hey, we tried a lot of other things in the market and I'm most excited about D-Slice. It was the easiest to use. And so that's just been like another exciting thing we've seen now that we've been in the market for 18 months. And you have to be in a pretty unique position, too, compared to a lot of other startups, right? Because you're not selling to other tech startups. So a lot of the tech companies I talk to, their customers are larger tech companies, Obviously, tech companies have been crushed in the last year and a half, so everyone's been impacted that way. But because you're targeting services businesses, I'm guessing you're not seeing that happen. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think not selling to tech, there's so many advantages and disadvantages exactly spot on in terms of the market impact. I mean, our service businesses and a lot of the services we sell to, they're more critical 
businesses. Like their business is not being significantly impacted by sort of tech bubble and like public markets situation that we've seen in the last 12 months. On the flip side, you know, I think the playbooks on how to reach like tech B2B leads and companies are definitely more evolved and refined because, I mean, I think a lot of tech companies will sell to other tech companies. And so, yeah, from a go-to-market perspective, we're at a very interesting spot of we are selling to businesses, but a lot of our customers also have consumer-like tendencies. So we have, you know, one of our customer acquisition streams is from TikTok, right? And I think that's obviously a less traditional B2B channel than, you know, a tech company selling to other tech companies would be using. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And is it ever challenging because you're focused on so many different industries? Like, does the message have to be adapted if you're talking to a tutor versus talking to a dog groomer, for example? Yes and no. No, in the sense that even though there's a lot of different niches that use Dayslice, because if you were to describe their business, you can describe their businesses in two very similar ways. Like they have repeat customers. Their customers often will purchase session paths. Their ways of engaging with their customers is often through like loyalty discounts. They care about getting testimonials. So if you distill their pain points, they're actually pretty similar. That being said, you know, obviously more custom and bespoke messaging is always better. And so, you know, we have landing pages that speak to all types of niches, right? And a personal trainer may care more about tracking session packs than a different niche. And so, yeah, I think positioning is a part of it. But we have found that even our generic landing page, when we have done user tests, people understand the concept pretty quickly and can kind of self-serve that like, oh, this feature would solve my pain point on X, Y, and Z. And as I was preparing for this interview earlier this week, I spent some time on your website and I was just thinking to myself, wow, you guys did such a great job. From a branding perspective, it's very memorable. It's very approachable. It's, it's very fun. Talk us through that branding process and you know, why you ended up going the route that you did. And, and of course, we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes so listeners can see what we're seeing so they can see how cool it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is where my experiences from Dropbox and Fleetsmith, which was a security SaaS company, but had a very playful brand. Like there was a cartoon dog as the logo. So coming from having spent considerable time at two companies where playfulness was very much a part of the brand and a reason why, you know, customers would remember our brand, that it felt very natural to like bring that to day slice. And so having like the watermelon logo, it's something that leads and customers will like bring up all the time because it's just memorable, right? And I think there are a lot of, like I said, like fragmented point solutions in the space. And so we wanted to go with something that felt very like friendly and playful because even if you're running a business, I mean, ultimately it's like an individual with like consumer preferences running that business. And so, yeah, we wanted to go with like a playful and bright friendly brand to differentiate ourselves in the space. 
I also saw on the site that you have comparisons with some of the competitors or alternative competitors that companies may go with or your target customers may go with. Talk to us about that decision. Because I think I hear like 50% of founders, you know, love that approach and 50% of founders like don't want to go down that path of being compared to anything at all in the market. So talk to us about that decision. So for us, that has served us very well in that the traffic that comes to Dayslice specifically through those product comparison pages actually converts the best to paid users. And so, you know, early on we tried it and we saw that it was working and now, you know, we're very much like leaning into that strategy. And I think it works for a couple of reasons. I think one, I mean, as an early stage company, people default don't know your brand, but they do know who Calendly is and Shopify is and Acuity is. And so naturally, you know, if someone is looking for those tools for their services business, they, you know, may search Calendly and then a couple of keywords. And so one, I think it just like naturally helps us with organic rankings. I think two, we compare ourselves to products that somewhat solve the pain points of our target audience, however, are not like built for them. So for example, just, you know, taking Calendly as the example, if you go to Calendly's landing page, you will see that they're very much targeted towards customer success, recruiting sales teams. And then you go to Dayslice and if you're a service provider, you automatically start to see that, okay, Dayslice is built specifically for my workflows, but they don't know to search for Dayslice, right? So the way they find us is through that Calendly search term. And then they end up finding content that is actually more personalized to them than Calendly. So I'm a big believer in like mentioning your competitors because those competitors are probably already in the headspace of your target customer. Like, I don't think we're like introducing people to Calendly because it's like listed on our site. And what about not requiring a credit card to sign up? That's something else that I see debated a lot with companies that are pursuing a, a PLG motion. Yeah. So we've decided not to do that because I think also it goes back to like being an early stage company where we haven't been in the market for many years and there isn't like built in trust that, okay, you know, I've been hearing about this company for five years. I feel very comfortable just like trying it out. We're asking people to like take a bit of time and to take the energy to check day slice out. And so when I think about, okay, do I want to put one more step in between them actually first witnessing the product value before, you know, getting them to put in their credit card. For me, the easy answer right now is no. That being said, I think decisions like that, like you continue to iterate on as you grow and you move from like one stage to the next. I also think that we probably, we could put a paywall when someone signs up. And do I think our revenue would get another like bounce up? I would say probably yes. But then I also think like that model of getting people to like put in their credit card first and then charging them as soon as the trial ends. I think a lot of times you end up getting a segment of customers who just forgot to like cancel. We saw that a lot of Dropbox, there was like a surprisingly large number of people where there was like no activity in their accounts for like months. And then they would remember we'd send a marketing email and then we'd like see a spike and churn. And I think right now that feels a little bit like tricking someone to pay you for a couple of months. But when I think about I want to build an enduring company, I'm not interested right now in that, you know, artificial like increase for a bit and then like having people who just forgot to like remove their credit card churn off like six months later. 
And it probably leads to like a certain portion of them hating you, right? I know whenever I end up in that situation, I kind of feel like they got me. You know, like I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it definitely feels a little bit of like a trick. And I feel very confident. And, you know, for when we look at the percentage of people who end up buying their first customer through Day Slice and testing the booking experience in the trial, a very large percentage of those people convert to pro. And so I said right now, like, I don't feel like we need to like trick people early on by getting them to like put in their credit card. Makes a lot of sense. And it's super helpful, I think, for founders listening in, because that is something that I do see just debated a lot. And a lot of the, you know, the growth hackers really push hard for it. So very useful to hear your perspective. I would also say one more thing there. It's, it really depends what you're optimizing for at a given stage. And right now we are still early enough that I want more people to use our product because it will help us understand you know, more signal on these are the indicators in a trial that correlate with a paid upgrade or a user, you know, deciding not to use the product and adding another step that paywall just like reduces the like qualitative product learning that happens in that world. And do you feel like you have product market fit yet? You know, I think the way I've heard it described is If you're asking yourself that question, you probably don't. And, you know, I'd say that we have a lot of exciting, like early signal that we're moving in that direction. But I think it's about really like scaling that positive feedback and like monetization we've seen in our like earlier segments to a much bigger base before I would feel like say, yes, we have product market fit. I think it's a spectrum. And it feels like in the last three to six months, we've made a lot of progress in that spectrum. But there's still a lot of like growth I want to see before saying that, you know, we have product market fit. What about fundraising? So I believe this was the first time you fundraised. Is that correct? No, we've actually raised two rounds. Okay, two rounds. So from those two rounds, what would you say you've learned? What was, you know, some of those actionable takeaways that you maybe didn't know when you were first starting your fundraising journey? Yeah, I mean, I think fundraising is a little bit of a black box before you've done it. And I remember talking to a lot of my you know, friends who had previously raised and it's like someone can describe it to you, but until you've done it, it doesn't quite like fully make like all the pieces don't quite make sense. It's like reading a book on how to swim versus like actually swimming. And for me, it's a sales process and you are connecting with people who are going to be partners on your journey, hopefully for a very long time. And so I think thinking about it through that lens and also Yes, you want to get funded, but you are picking your partners over the long term made me rethink. It's not asking for money. It's like, who do I want to partner with? And so I think that was like the biggest shift that I made partway through my fundraising journey. And that also like totally up leveled and increased the quality of conversations I was having. Makes a lot of sense. Now we're into the final couple of questions here. So if you were just starting the company again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? I think the skill that has served me probably the most over the last you know few years and also has been the reason why all things considered, I would say I'm pretty like low anxiety is if you can identify the one or two things that either are going to move the business forward or de-risk a major open question, just think about those problems and don't worry about anything else. Like there's a lot of problems that are like medium term problems that I think people can get caught up on and then they start worrying about. And that's a distraction from like the one thing you need to be focusing on today. And early on when you start a company, when it's either just you or maybe a co-founder, 
I think the challenging part of that phase is like you could focus on anything. Right. And so like having that skill of being like, actually, the one thing we're going to focus on this week is like S and nothing else really matters if by the end of the week we've answered this question. And then as your team grows, that's like a very helpful mindset to also like give your team focus, which, you know, they'll also appreciate because you're never going to have enough resources to do everything you want to do as an early stage company. And so I think being able to answer that question is like very important. And final question, let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's that vision that you're hoping to build? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the labor market, the exciting thing about our target audience is like increasingly more and more people are going solo as they sell their services. And so what I'm really excited about building is a product where you don't have to worry about anything else. If you're good at doing your service, whatever that may be, Day Slice can be that really like personal assistant that makes everything else a very small part of your business overhead and enables you to do what you do best. And, you know, there's a lot of tactical ways that we're going to achieve that. But I think zooming out, it's like enabling people to go solo, spin off of those like medium services, businesses and orgs they may be a part of and really achieve more of that like independent career that they may have been hoping to do that historically there hasn't just been like infrastructure to support. Amazing. I love it. And I really love everything that you guys are doing. Now, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah, if you want to check out the product directly, you can go to dayslice.com. And then you can follow us on pretty much every social platform by following HQ. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about what you're building and share some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I know the audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 